Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to be hearing from Left Behind Alex. He was an interpreter for Canadian forces in Afghanistan. He's now being threatened. His life is being threatened by the Taliban. And he wants badly to come to Canada. You'll hear his story. And you'll hear James Ackham. He was also an interpreter for Canadian forces. But he has made it to Canada. And he's very, very happy and fortunate to be here. He'll tell you that. So you'll hear the story. We need to do whatever we can to get these interpreters into this country. The United States is the U.S. self-examining or self-destructing. I spoke with pollster John Zogby about that. Alberta businessman Bob Mitchell has a new plan for at least the energy sector in Western Canada to introduce itself to the rest of the country, and they're calling it We Are One Canada. Also, an increase in anti-Semitic violence. I spoke with Abby Ben Lolo, human rights activist and president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies in Toronto, and our good friend and former Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford took a hard look at our leaders in Ottawa. Brian Peckford does not pull his punches, as you'll hear. I was thinking last night about Canada Day, and I was thinking about this country of ours. I came here as a 13-year-old in the dead of a Canadian winter, and the first couple of years, and I've talked a little bit about this over the years, but not much, but first couple of years were, were difficult, as they often are for immigrant families. And, uh... And then through just determination and, and opportunity, opportunity and determination, probably in that, in that order, you recognize the opportunity and then you have the determination to pursue it. I've been able to create a, just a wonderful life in Canada and uh, proudly became a Canadian citizen of the first opportunity. And I have, throughout my adult life, only identified myself as Canadian. My dad was British. My mother was Swiss. But um, I've always identified myself only as Canadian. That's it. It's the only identity that I have. And there are so many. I mean, I'm, I know the story is repeated again and again and again and again across the country. And at this time of the year, so many Canadians are so proud of being here and being part of this, of this great nation. But on the day before Canada Day, and at a time when the federal government is increasing the numbers of immigrants and refugees entering Canada, I got to thinking about a group of individuals who I think should all be here. A few are, most aren't. But they should all be here. And this group of individuals accompanied Canadian military into battle very recently and we're often the first targets for insurgents fighting our Canadian soldiers. You know I'm talking about the Afghan interpreters who unarmed stood with our Canadian troops, helped our troops understand local customs and culture, and of course interpreted for Canadian soldiers. We've had Canadians who served in the Afghanistan conflict tell us on air that these Afghan interpreters saved Canadian lives during missions. And yet there's no effort being made by the Trudeau government and no commitment heard from the Conservatives, or the New Democrats, or the Greens, to open the doors of Canada wide to this relatively small number of interpreters and their families. They remain hunted by the Taliban and likely a resurgent ISIS presence in Afghanistan. Now, the Trudeau government signed the UN Convention on Refugees, which calls on Canada to take in international refugees and protect them. Not a word about the Afghan interpreters who stood with our Canadian soldiers. Ahmed Hussein, the immigration minister, has no apparent interest in the interpreters, neither does the prime minister, neither have we heard Andrew Scheer or Jagmeet Singh or Elizabeth May speak in support of the Afghanis who are under threat, I'll say it again, and who saved Canadian military lives. I wish I'd thought of this yesterday before my interview with Andrew Scheer, but it just came to me last night. There's something we should do today. 
So back with me uh, from Afghanistan is one of the interpreters known to us as Left Behind Alex. And with us as well, one of his great friends and fellow interpreter, James Ackham, who was able to make his way to Canada. And James is very happily and very comfortably living his life in the province of Alberta with his family. And when we last spoke with James, he was well on his way to becoming a Canadian citizen. James, let me ask you, first of all, are you, have, you, have you acquired the Canadian citizenship? Uh, well, uh, honestly, no, I'm just waiting because there's, a, there's a, cer- a certain amount of years, I guess, to wait for, for that process. Right. So I'm just waiting to, to reach that target, like, I don't know, it's four years or five years, five years or Okay, but you but yeah. you will you will as soon as you can you're going to become a Canadian citizen that I know. Yeah, well, honestly, I, I I'm here right now, like about uh, I, I guess it's four years. I guess. Yeah, time goes by quickly, doesn't it? I remember when we talked to you when you were at the airport in Toronto. Let's yeah. say hello to your good friend, your great friend, uh, who's in Afghanistan, who would love to be in Canada, who again, I believe, should be in this country with his family. Uh, we know him as Left Behind Alex. Alex, hi. Hi, my friend Ro, and hi to Jim Vecam. And first of all, happy Canada Day to all the listeners and all the people around it, the great nation of Canada. Let me have you guys talk to each other for a minute before I ask any questions. I appreciate it. So, how are you doing, James? I'm good, Alex. I'm good. How are you? How's nice family? From you. I'm doing great. I mean, just struggling with this challenging life. So, as, as usual, you know, there's no change. I know, man. I and about yourself, what you doing out there? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I understand. I've been I've been trying to contact you, but I don't know. For some reason, uh, you are not in that, those, uh, like, social media, like Facebook. And I, I, I think I was trying to contact you, but it doesn't work out, I guess. So I, I'm uh, I know I'm uh, I'm happy to, to hear your voice that you are doing well. So me too. And bro. I appreciate to uh, I appreciate the the Roy Grain show that gave us opportunity to talk to each other sometimes. Well, what we'd like to do is arrange for the two of you to be able to talk to each other in Canada, and this is what we have to get accomplished and get the the political parties to understand. Alex, what's your life like in Afghanistan day to day? What do you do? So I'm back to work. I'm working for the NATO mission. I'm working as a linguist for uh, the special forces. I know it's dangerous, but uh, I have to save money for my family, and there's nothing else to do. I know I can be safe when I'm back in the camp with the coalition forces, but when I get out, when I go on leave, so currently I'm on leave, the situation's not okay. Like I'm not walking normally free or let's say like the rest of the people they're living in the town or in the city. So the situation's not okay. Life is challenging out here. Always I have to be in hiding, you know, always and always. But there's no chance for me to live normally like other people out here. Last time Life we not okay. Yeah, last time we talked, you told us about a letter that had somehow been passed along until it got to you and it was from the Taliban. Exactly. And they were they were letting you know that they were pursuing you, and uh, when they caught you, they were going to kill you, and they were going to kill your family. Yep. Exactly. They're and, savage, and, you know. They don't have mercy. And you have no, you, there's no doubt in your mind that if they catch you, they will kill you. Of course, there's no doubt. They do as they say, you know. They don't hesitate. Yeah. Uh, James, I know you only have a couple of minutes because you're at work. Uh, any anything uh, that you want to add to to uh, to our conversation so far? I'm, I'm sure you're worried about your friend's safety. Well, yeah, of course I'm worried about Alex. Because uh, well, honestly, those guys are not joking around. As, as soon as they catch you, you are gone, man. Like, hopefully, someone someone understand his situa- situation and then get him get him here. So I don't know how would that work. So it's something out of my hands. So I don't know. I, I hope one day he makes to Canada and uh, he can be safe here. So 
Yeah, I, the only thing I understand that those guys are not joking around, man. Like, yeah, they're they're really serious. Once they feed you, they they're they're serious on whatever they say. So I experienced that. Well, we're glad you're here with your family, James, and uh, you earned your passage to Canada by serving with the Canadian Forces, and and you're here now. Uh, can't can't forget our great friend Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun who did such tremendous work to get you into the country and has worked extremely hard for the interpreters. Uh, Alex, what did you do with the, with the Canadian troops? So on, a, on a typical day uh, where, you, where you went out into the countryside and you had a mission to, to perform, what was your job? Well, uh, my job was not that easy. And we were going out. We were the eyes for the advisors. And we were just talking to the local nationals, exchanging the language. And, of course, we were talking as well with the Afghan National Army. And we had threats going on, like IED threats. We had sniper, we had incomings, we had, like, insurgent ambushes. So we knew all of this stuff that was going to happen. But, of course, that was our job. We had to do it. And that's what we were getting paid for. And, of course... Our job was very hard, you know, it was like, we could die there, we could lose our leg, we could lose our arm, so we already knew about these, but we accepted to go out there with the ISAF mission. So how is it that you're not, how is it that you're not in Canada? You know, there was a, there was a short window that the conservative government opened in 2012. How is it that you, you didn't get into the country? That is. A ridiculous, I mean, program. That was a ridiculous program, actually, because they opened the process. They had the program for a short time. They took a couple of English, or less than most of them, but they left a few behind. Why are we here still? It's a good question from your side. I mean, I understand it, but the question is, the program was really ridiculous. There was nobody out there to speak about this. There was... there. There's there's no one still out there except you guys. I mean, you're the only one, Joe, and let's say Charles Adler and the rest of the guys that who are still struggling. But the rest of the people, the uh, the uh, officials, they're not involved. They yeah. don't talk about this. Yeah, we know well, you know close this program so so soon. Yeah, and James, we have people wandering into Canada across the border um, at non-official border crossings, and they're being taken care of uh, as refugee claimants until their claim is established and just and, and settled. But uh, but Alex uh, can't make it here, and uh, neither can the other interpreters, and their lives are in, under threat. So it just uh, it's 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 all wrong. <laughs> the whole thing is wrong from all different perspectives. Exactly. Everything is wrong. And I lost a couple of my friends just a couple of months ago. They were killed by Taliban. One got killed by the suicide attack. The other got killed. He got shot like by AK-47 right inside of his house, right inside of his brother. So, see, the situation is not okay out here. It's yeah. okay for the normal people, but not for the linguists who assisted the ISF mission and the ones who, assist, who are assisting the NATO mission here in Afghanistan. Yeah, There should be a possible way for it. There should be a way out for this. You guys suited up with our soldiers every day, and you went out on the missions with them every day. And as one of our soldiers told us on the air not so long ago, the insurgents, and I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, the insurgents would would often target the interpreters first, because if they took the interpreters out, then uh, there was no way for the Canadian troops to communicate and they didn't know the customs of the of the area. It certainly made life more difficult for our soldiers if you guys were eliminated. So uh, on a on a on a day to day basis, Alex, you're concerned for your life, you're concerned for your family's life, but you're back to working with uh, with, with Western militaries. Exactly. I didn't submit to any of the threats. I'm still working. I know my family; they're not living well. I mean, I'm not talking about the financial issues. My financial issue is okay, but there there are threats that my family are concerned about. There are threats that my family are concerned about. Myself, you know, what I'm saying when I'm going outside on a missions, they're not feeling okay. I mean, they're saying you should be at home. Mm-hmm. You can't do this anymore. I'm like, no, I cannot. 
I cannot submit to threats. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to give up. I just want to work until I'm alive, until I can make it all the way to Canada or any other countries. Well, you've you've served. I you served Canada already, and uh, J- yeah. James sets the example of what life is like and and what the contribution is. And James is making a contribution to this country, living uh, and working in Alberta. So, guys, thank you very much, James. Congratulations again on on being here and on the way to being a Canadian citizen. And Alex, I know that uh, I will, and I know my friend Charles Adler will, and Joe Warmington certainly will. We'll continue to fight for the interpreters to come to Canada, to be brought to Canada, and to be properly respected for what you've done. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for uh, the time. Thanks for all the colleagues that are working with you. And once again, happy Canada Day to all the Canadians all over the okay, great my friend. nation of Canada. Okay. And thank you, uh, thank you, James. Uh, I just want to say, uh, have a nice long weekend for everyone. So happy Canada Day. Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah, thank, thank you, thank you very much for giving us opportunity to talk to each other. Sometimes, so, so we'll keep I trying. We'll keep working on it. Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, there is uh, Alex, uh, left behind Alex, and James Ackham on the Roy Green Show. With us now, and we're going to talk about our friends across the border in the United States. Their national holiday is coming up in a matter of days. Um, After the G20 and President Donald Trump setting foot inside North Korea, uh, America appears to us to be a nation in turmoil. Political ugliness in Washington between Republicans and Democrats, violence on the streets, Portland, Oregon last night, political cartoon of Donald Trump with a golf cart and carrying a golf club standing over the image of a drowned migrant father and baby daughter asking if he can play through. That's gotten a lot of, well, a lot of negative response. A lot of other people are saying it's First Amendment rights. The cartoonist got fired. So one of the questions is, is our southern neighbor and the world's most powerful nation self-examining or self-destructing? John Zogby is the founder of the world-famous Zogby Poll, He's written op-eds for major media like the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. He's the author of We Are Many, We Are One, Tribal Analytics in 21st Century America. John, thank you for the time. I always look forward to our conversations. I do too, Roy, and thanks for asking, and happy holiday. Well, thank you. Yeah, Canada Day tomorrow, and you have yours coming up on, on the 4th of July. On the 4th of July, yeah. So how would you describe what's going on in the United States right now? We look at this this picture, this, well, sometimes I just see a, a goulash of, of, of confrontation. Uh, are you self-examining? Are you self-destructing? Are, are we with some misunderstanding what's happening in the United States? No, I think you nailed it, you know. Uh, self-examining, self-destructing, and, and self-creating all at the same time. You know, technology, uh, ever-changing technology, is just uh, changing every institution, every agency, uh, to a great degree our culture and, um, and the mindset of our age cohorts uh, all at once. And uh, things are crumbling before our very eyes, not just simply politics, but, you know, the workplace, how we, how we conduct business churches, hierarchy, um, and, and so on. Politics and government are just, you know, an, another very important symptom of this um, creative destruction that we're going through. Days, the days will get better, but we're really in the middle of it right now. So how do you see what's going on in uh, politics? I sometimes feel that if government is misbehaving, it gives license to everybody else to misbehave. Um so you have the Democrats and the Republicans daily at each other's throats, daily. Yeah. And now we have the election campaigns underway. My God, I mean, it's, it's way too long, John. But so... <laughs> you think so, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Donald Trump announces that he's running again, so that gets a lot yeah. of attention. Then the Democrats, they have so many candidates for, uh, to represent the, the Democratic Party... Uh, in 2020, the presidential vote, they have to hold the debates on two nights. So we've got 20 people, yeah. 19 are eventually going to disappear. How do you see what's going on in your government now? Let's start, first of all, with, with Donald Trump. 
he rode a wave. Um, you know, he rode a couple of waves. Uh, actually, there, a deep-seated anger that was no surprise. That's been we've been talking about that that anger since the early '90s. Um, the angry white male, uh, plus some, and and uh, he encapsulated uh, that feeling um, and rode it to victory. It was an anti-establishment campaign, and he was fortunate enough to run against uh, perhaps the most establishment candidate that the Democrats could have put up. Uh, By the same token, the the other piece of it was that this is the merger of entertainment and politics, and he embodied that, you know, He's a personality unto himself, uh, a reality show star, uh, and someone who, more than anything else, uh, more than building buildings and uh, applying his brand name to anything and and everything, uh, he's a a creature of the media. Uh, And and so all of that uh, came together, and obviously with no preparation whatsoever to to lead a nation um, or to be engaged in politics or um, to and or incentive to act uh, uh, the way that leaders normally act both here in this country and on the world stage I mean the list of groups that he has deeply insulted the list of world figures that he's deeply insulted are are just legion by now but he gets away with it because he has a solid base, not a majority base, but a solid base that keeps him in office. Uh, is there a sense in the United States that even though Donald Trump is, let's use the word unusual, uh-huh. that he's still accomplished um, some remarkable things? At the same time, he's upset a huge number of people, and now there's this, there's this busload of Democrats who feel that they should be the ones to defeat Donald Trump in the uh, in the election in, t- in 2020. I was talking to an American friend on the phone yesterday, uh, on Friday, and uh, this friend of mine said, none of them is going to have a chance of beating Donald Trump. He said, I watch them, I listen to them, they're going to play right into his hands, he will take them apart, just like he took the Republicans apart in the primaries. What do you think? There's a strong element of truth to that. If the election were held today, Donald Trump would lose. Um, But the election is not today. Um, And there's plenty of time for the Democrats to to self-destruct. I think you saw the first step just the other evening, you know, when, um, uh, you know, a lesser known but very strong U.S. senator from, from California, Kamala Harris, um, who, who is up high on the list of, of front runners? Really went after Vice, former Vice President Biden. Um, uh, all, almost withered him, I guess you can say. And while she certainly was able to dis- display prosecutorial uh, talents and uh, an ability to rally a, a base, she be, she kind of in effect began the the process for opening the door to all of these candidates just firing away at, at, at each other uh, while Donald Trump sits on the sidelines um, and smiles. And he won't just smile, he'll take advantage of that. So we can't rule Donald Trump out um, because we can't rule the Democrats in. Yeah. John, when you, um, let me ask you first of all about Trump uh, and uh-huh. and his step into, the, into, the, into North Korea, into the DPRK. How, how did you see that? Well, it's a huge media event, um, and and that doesn't necessarily make it a a, a negative. Uh, obviously, you know most people would pr- would prefer talking to the enemy uh, you know, rather than uh, pointing a gun or having a gun pointed back at the enemy. And these are two nuclear powers. Um, the fact, however, is that you know this is a very strange and and thoroughly disgusting dynasty, the Kims. Um, uh, I mean, the stories abound. Yes. And this has been the hermit kingdom, you know, for many years. We know very, very little about what goes 
on inside North Korea, I guess that makes it even more stunning that he would do that. But he would do that because, you know, making it into the the lines in the history book, you know, kind of like the plaque and what goes under your name, that includes um, accomplishments, but it also includes stunning kinds of events. And this is a stunning one. It is, and uh, it's it's open to all sorts of interpretation. I was just thinking of young Mr. Womberger, who was tortured and 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 sent yeah. back to the United States in such a terrible state of physical disrepair. He he died in in, in short order. He seems to be, have been forgotten, and and that mm-hmm. is something that I I just actually I was thinking about that when I watched uh, the president of the United States crossover into North Korea. Time always gets away from us. Let me ask you about the, the, what's going on at the, the, at the United oh. States-Mexico border. There are so many accusations. There's talk about the detention centers for migrants being concentration camps. I'm going to be speaking to a leader in the Jewish community about that later in the program today. John, how do you see what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border? How do you interpret what's going on? We cannot express enough outrage as, uh, as to what is going on and the border. Uh, look, it's not only contrary to American ideals, it's inhuman is what it is. Migration is a story of humankind and people seeking to enter shore, our shores, not only for freedom, but a chance to live, um, you know, is as clear as you can get. And look, the, the man at the top gets, gets the blame for it, just like he gets the credit for the economy. Uh, he gets the blame for for this and the fact that, A, not only is he not seeking a, a humane solution, um, he's making things worse. Uh, that's why I'm not a big fan of going over the top like with cartoons or with rhetoric, but uh, this, uh, this cartoonist, uh, I think, encapsulated what uh, a lot of Americans and, and a lot of citizens of the world feel, frankly. How does um, how do you fit that into this into this larger picture? The fact that um, Bill Clinton and then Barack Obama both spoke very emphatically about not allowing people across the border in an undocumented manner in large numbers. Uh, is it is it the way it's being handled? Is it, how do you how do you how do you put all of these component parts together and come up with something that's cohesive? It's a very good question. There are no heroes in this story, and the politics of of illegal immigration has been such that uh, that these folks are pariahs. But there's been such an intense focus on on refugees whether they're established refugees or uh, self-identified refugees, that uh, the media attention is on it. Now, to the best of my knowledge, um, I know that Bill Clinton spoke strongly about illegal immigration. I know that Barack Obama um, deported actually a few million uh, illegal immigrants. But to the best of my knowledge, I do think that they had some kind of criminal records. Um, but this um, is being handled as a political football. And the United States is, uh, under, the, under President Trump, is actually making uh, a racist case against them and is actually talking like, you know, to the, to the women and children of Guatemala, go back, uh, go back where you came from, and they can't go back where they came from. Uh, it's a, it's it's a awful situation, and yeah, it, it really is. And there are so many. We have far more questions now than we have answers, and I start to wonder in the few seconds we have left, John, whether we have the right people in leadership in in either of our countries, and whether the potential successors would be necessarily better than who's. Well, I, I shouldn't finish that sentence because I, I. I'm, I'm just such an opponent of Justin Trudeau, but there is a question about do we have leadership and is there a succession for leadership that will do a better job? That's It's hard to be a leader when you're standing on tectonic plates. Yeah, that's, but I think one so thing that, that, that is revealed here is that 
We've got a very far right-wing government here in the United States. You've got a pretty left-wing government in in Canada. And this is a time when ideology is more and more irrelevant. Well said. Leadership is important. Well said. Um, And my friend, I have to run, but it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you, John. Thank you for the time. Always good, Roy. Talk again. And happy Fourth of July. You too. First of July. Thank you. Okay, John Zogby uh, from the Zogby Poll, and his book is We Are Many, We Are One. I was particularly glad that I'd heard from uh, Bob Mitchell, who is an entrepreneur in the oil sands. Uh, his company is Unity Rig, and, uh, and Bob was on the air with us three weeks ago, two weeks ago, and he read an open letter to Canadians about what life is like for the business community and for people working in the oil sands. And it's not good. It really is not good. It's bad. It's, they're in crisis state. And um, there was so much response to that that I, I heard from Bob again. And I'm going to put him back on the air because I asked him to come on the show today to uh, to speak to what he shared with me uh, day before yesterday. I'm trying to keep all this timeline straight. First of all, Bob, thank you very much for coming back. Thanks for for uh, your initial visit. And you know that your open letter to Canadians, which I'm going to repost the link to after we talk, your open letter to Canadians generated a ton of feedback, not only on social media, but certainly on my email. So d- did that surprise you? And, uh, and, and, and did the, the tone of, the, of what you heard surprise you? And, and I'm correct, right, when I said what you, in the open letter, you pointed out that it's crisis time in the oil patch. It absolutely is crisis time. You know, and Roy, I, I wanted to sincerely thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak to Canadians on your show. Uh, I know from talking with so many people here that there's kind of a general feeling of nobody cares ab- about what's going on in our communities. But you know, the amazing thing, as I was reading all the concerned and sympathetic Twitter posts after the segment, I realized that there are people who really do care out east. And it occurred to a few of us here that, uh, that still believe in the fairness of our fellow Canadians, that if we, act, if we put an actual face on the pain of the, of the families and their communities, maybe, just maybe, more people would hear us. Well, what, so, so what, you're, what you've told me you want to do, and I'm going to ask you to explain it to us in just a second, but what you want to do is, and you use the word communities, you want the rest of the country to understand and, and, and feel what's going on in the small towns and in the, in the population centers, not big population centers, mm-hmm. but population centers that have built up around the energy sector in this country, which drove so much of our economy and brought so much success to our national economy for such a long period of time, right? You know, Roy, over the last 40 years that I've been in this business, I have watched most of these sleepy little farming communities grow and develop as the energy industry brought people and investment into these small towns. You know, when they built motels and restaurants and other new buildings and and with that the towns paved gravel roads they built arenas and provided other vital infrastructure required for a thriving prosperous community you know branch offices moved in repair welding and machine shops were opened and added more fuel for more stores and services but you know unfortunately over the last couple of years investment has completely stopped completely businesses have closed people have moved and it's getting harder and harder for these municipalities to be able to provide even the basics of services, you know? Yeah, c- continue. Tell us what, uh, what, what, what you've come up with and what the, what the plan is going forward, what you'd like the rest of the country to be aware of and participate in. Well, you know, there, there is, um, we started a, well, basically what happened is after the show and after we realized that there was some people who were listening to us, we decided to, um, a few of us got together and we decided to create a, a grassroots appeal platform that was completely community funded with a common belief of no politics, no politicians, and no companies. And we managed to raise a small amount of money in order to start a Facebook page called We Are One Canada. And we are working on a website that will feature a scrapbook of stories and activities community by community. Uh, there will also be a place where families can list their name, town, 
and post a photo of their family under the heading of, Has the Energy Downturn Hurt Your Family? We are also planning to hire a journalist to travel, photograph, and interview people in their communities to, cr- to create the, strap, the scrapbook telling their story. Uh, we're hoping that by putting a real face on a real person, all Canadians can understand how important this is. You know, Roy, once, once this appeal filters out in its entirety to our fellow Canadians, if the response that comes back is, you know, we don't care, uh, um, I, I don't think I need to tell anyone what will happen next year. You know, I mean, when you look at, there are a lot of people that have lost absolutely everything over the last few years and are really pretty angry. And there are a lot of people that truthfully are just ready to give up. But honestly, almost everybody in these communities feels the same as far as being betrayed by fellow Canadians. Because we know that everywhere else in Canada, people are still driving their cars, heating their homes, taking trips on airplanes and cruise liners, same as always. Roy, we have more than a million Canadians here that cannot understand why it is only our families and our communities to have to bear the costs of public opinion that turns against the energy sector. I mean, we don't get it. Uh, do, do you think it's Canadians that have turned against the energy sector, or do you think it's uh, government and uh, and and an agenda that's turned against the energy sector? Is it a combination? Of, like, I'm just asking what you feel. What's the feeling among Albertans in the in the oil industry? And I can probably extend this to uh, Saskatchewan and maybe Absolutely. even beyond. But we're all involved. I what, mean, heavily involved. Is there, what's your sense? That it's is it the people? Is it the government? What? Who's behind it? Well, who's behind it, obviously, is our federal government. I mean, right. there's no question about it. It's not the, but the thing is, we the people are the government. If we don't agree with what's happening out there, it's we the people that have to change it. Okay, so... If people, in, if the rest of us Canadians don't, uh, don't believe in what's going on, it's we the people that have to change it. So the We Are One Canada yes. initiative mm-hmm. is going to be about the small towns yep. in... The, uh, in the in the oil sands area of Alberta. No, it's in there. It's there. There's a lot more area, Roy, than the oil sands. I mean, okay, so small towns where most of the people are employed is in all of these small communities that operate in the oil and you know in the in the gas or oil and gas production. So in the energy sector, right? The small in the towns in the energy yeah, that's sector. A lot better. Okay, yeah. so so they're all hurting and uh, yep. and they're losing population, they're losing business, and the and and they're looking around to say how come nobody's Got our back. Right. Exactly. You got it. Exactly what it is. So you're going to, with this We Are One Canada initiative, mm-hmm. you're going to tell the stories on yep. social media yep. and, and elsewhere here. And I imagine uh, I'm certainly going to put our our, uh, our affiliate stations in, in Alberta uh, in touch with you and make them aware. You're going to tell the story to the rest of the country. And then what comes back from the rest of the country is going to tell the tale about what the reaction is going to be and what the response is going to be. You know, is, is it going to be, a, okay, you don't care about us, so we're checking out? You know, that's kind of the feeling that people are definitely starting to spread. I mean, starting to. Right now, we can stop it right now with some help. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is a, an appeal campaign, Roy. If we want to stop that feeling, yeah. we collectively, as all Canadians, we can stop it. We can stop it overnight by getting, getting some help. I mean, people here want to work. We yeah. just want to go back to work. That's yeah. it. Hey, Bob, I get it. If you lose everything, uh, you're not just going to sit there and say, "Well, just take take everything. Just just take my underwear too." Yeah, you know, it's exactly. it's it's going to take be a home. case of you're going to my car. You'll, you'll draw tools. Huh? I said, take my home, take my car, take my tools. Yeah. Now what? It's crisis time, eh? It's crisis time. You know, our Roy, our natural gas sector is in absolute crisis. This sector is months, not years, before complete collapse. We need, at the very least, a big honking gas pipeline going east, just as fast as we can dig a hole and bury pipe. And with a promise to do, with a promise to do that, we can probably bring a few dollars back into this in, in the industry and revitalize at least one sector for now. You know. So you want to hear from Joe and Jane in Canada, Mister and. Mrs. Canada, Ms. Canada, um, everybody. Um, I'm going to get in trouble now for 
you know, saying Mr. and Mrs., but hell. <laughs> it, it's Mr. and Mrs. out here. I mean, the well, families it's, are it's, being, it's, it's, it's all about, apart. I mean, we want to hear from Canadians right. what their response is to the, to the, to the message. To the plea. It's to the plea, plea. yeah. And you're, and you're going to tell the stories of individuals, and you're going to tell the stories of towns, small towns, and it's going to be inescapable, and then the response is going to be come from, from, from the rest of Canada. I'm starting, I'm, I, I, I worry, though, Bob, that no matter how much support you might get from the average Canadian in other provinces, you still have to get the governments to let you work again. Do you know what? People vote, and you got a chance here in October. I mean, if that if if the feeling of Canadians is that that we're going to be hurt more without a change of government, well, that's up to. I mean, we we are non-political as a group. We're we're not about politics at all, Roy. Mm-hmm. Like I had said, mm-hmm. I mean, this is up to Canadians. Canadians have the right to vote, and they need to vote with their hearts. You know, and if they vote with their hearts, and they look at, I mean, we've got millions of people out here, Roy. Millions of people. Yeah. You know, we need to feel people in the East need to communicate with us. I have to tell you, I I have to tell you, Bob, I think that the majority of people in this country are quite empathetic, feel for you, don't quite know what to do for you, but but they're definitely understanding and you are our fellow Canadians. Um, But here's what I want to do. You've alerted us to the fundamentals now. The program's going to get underway. Um, We are one Canada. We are one Canada. We are one Canada. We are one Canada. So let's pull together. Let's okay. Pull. But if it doesn't dissolved. doesn't come back, then there yeah. might be another development. So yeah. it might be a separation, more of a separation development. It might be more of a national unity question issue. I, I don't know whether people will, 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 will I don't know what the reaction is going to be. But Bob, I thank you for coming back on. I'm going to repost your open letter of a couple of weeks ago on Twitter shortly. And I'm going to open up our phone lines now, and uh, the question that I'm going to be asking, and it can fit in the We Are One Canada uh, initiative, because the question I'm asking is, what is Canada's future? Bob Mitchell, thank you very much. Thank you're you, a, Roy. You're, I can't tell you how much we appreciate this. Your, your help is phenomenal. Well, you're a contributor. You're a business man. You're a, an entrepreneur. You put your own money and your heart and your soul into your company and into your country. And uh, you deserve some answers. Bob, thank you. Thank you, Roy. Take care. Take Bob care. Mitchell. And, um, yeah, he's uh, he's an entrepreneur in the oil patch, and his company is unityrig.com. So We Are One Canada is the initiative from Mr. Mitchell and his associates, friends, other small business owners. I read a statistic about two months ago that really, really disturbed me. And it didn't have anything to do with any political organization or a polling organization. This was the New York Police Department, the NYPD. And the NYPD indicated that there had been an 82% increase in violence against Jews in New York City in the first months of 2019 versus the same time period last year. 82% increase in violence against Jews in New York City in the first months of uh, 2019 versus 2018. A lot of things that I want to talk to our next guest about, and I'm glad he's with us. Uh, Avi Benlolo is a human rights activist. He's president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies in Toronto. Mr. Benlolo, thank you for the time. Thank you for having me, and happy Canada Day weekend. Happy Canada Day weekend. That is a very alarming statistic from the New York Police Department. Uh, It is alarming. Uh, Unfortunately, it's becoming quite common. It's not just the New York um, Police Department. It's also, um, you know, most Canadian cities, uh, we find very, very similar stats. Um, and the, uh, if you would believe, uh, the Berlin police force has uh, recently revealed uh, very similar statistics. Uh, so this is quite widespread and obviously very disconcerting. I, I saw that story coming from Germany, and uh, given that they have federal laws in Germany which do not allow Holocaust denial, 
when you're talking about a statistically significant increase in anti-Semitic activity in Germany, that is of it's a huge concern everywhere. But you particularly pay attention to Germany because of its most recent history. That's right, and that's what's shocking uh, about it all. That uh, mere uh, we're, we're nearing seventy-five years since uh, the conclusion of the Holocaust, and. Um, you know, we're seeing the resurgent of uh, Nazi white supremacist ideology emanating uh, from Germany, of all places, and despite the hate crime laws that you've mentioned. Um, and the election, in fact, um, of uh, a, a stronger right-wing uh, political element within uh, Germany, that's also um, very concerning. Um, you know, and obviously it shouldn't just be concerning to the Jewish uh, community at large, but uh, to, to the world at large, that we're seeing the rising tide of this kind of hatred and intolerance. What I also find disturbing is how uh, gratuitously Nazi terminology is tossed around these days. Um, yeah. and, and it's almost as though there's an absence of understanding of, of history, recent history, it's almost yep. as though there's an absence of understanding of the, the massive um, genocidal realities of our recent history. And then I hear politicians like uh, Congresswoman uh, in, in from New York at AOC on Twitter yep. likens detention centers on the U.S.-Mexico border for migrants attempting to enter the United States to Nazi concentration camps where Europe's Jews were herded for mass extinction. I say to myself, is the English language so restricted that you can't think of any other terminology? Um, what do you, what do you, when do you see that, Mr. Ben Lolo, how do you react? Well, there, there's a whole, what you just said, um, you know, is, could be unpacked in, in, in a very lengthy response. Um, firstly, there's a rising tide of ignorance about the Holocaust. Uh, we're finding that education is more necessary than ever in understanding, um, you know, the Holocaust, the you know, the genocide itself, uh, when it was, where it was, who did it, why they did it. Um, all of those questions need to be um, entered into the education system far and wide. We're finding more millennials, more young people who are just are not knowledgeable. Some people don't even know what the swastika um, uh, means, we find in our educational uh, workshops that we do at our, at our center. And so we need to go in and we go, we go, we educate about a thousand students um, a week. Um, and we're happy to do it, but more is necessary um, to bring light. And it's not just a matter of, of the Holocaust vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish community. This was a world event that allied countries were involved with. Canada lost 40,000 soldiers, over a million uh, soldiers were, were, and people were, were involved in that war, Canadians were involved in that war. And so, and so it's our, part of our own historical fabric that we should be very much aware of and should be part of our educational system. And it's not, and so, and so, or it's not sufficiently. And so um, we need to think about how people are, are understanding that and, and not forgetting because history can repeat if we're ignorant of it. Um, and the issue of, of comparison um, by AOC to, of, of concentration camps to the immigration issue, the immigration issue in the U.S. is horrific, and there's no question about it, uh, but there is absolutely no comparison. Uh, and it's outrageous uh, that, that the detention centers um, down in the border uh, with U.S.-Mexico would be compared to Nazi concentration camps. There's, there's just no, no comparison. There's no equivalency uh, to what took place. And I've walked the grounds. I do so every, in, actually in a week I'll be at Auschwitz uh, with another Canadian delegation comprised of police chiefs and educators and po politicians to show them what actually took place at Auschwitz alone over 1.1 million Jews were murdered and and they were sent to gas chambers and so to compare that to what is taking place um, actually almost anywhere on earth anywhere on earth um, is outrageous and so it diminishes the Holocaust it's 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 in a way really uh, watering down what happened and and we are in dangerous territory when that starts to happen let me ask you this how dangerous is the territory when we have, as a Leger poll found out, 53% of Quebecers saying 
they had no instructions on, on the Holocaust. No, nobody, no, no, no talk about Holocaust while they were in school. And for the rest of the country, it's 35% of the population. Right. Yeah, it's very dangerous. And that's why uh, what we're seeing is an extreme amount of intolerance coming out of Quebec. Um, and I hate to say that, but we, we did a, a poll, our own poll, last summer, exactly at this time, and we found that approximately 27% of Quebecers um, hold anti-Semitic views. And that will probably be the same against any other minority within Quebec. Um, and so what you're seeing is a society that is highly intolerant. And we believe that through further uh, Holocaust education, genocide education, or education, look, education about Rwanda or Darfur, other uh, historical events that, ha- that, that were promoted through intolerance and racism and discrimination, we can educate societies and communities to be much more respectful of one another. Uh, we just saw the recent bill that was passed in Quebec um, uh, you know, against uh, uh, minorities and, and so forth. And that has caused a lot of consternation. And some people are obviously saying this is against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in this country. And so, and so as Canadians, we, we should be promoting more education around racism, intolerance, discrimination. It, the Holocaust is part of that, um, uh, you know, of that discussion because it'll foster greater compassion Better citizenship for all Canadians, youngsters, will have that in mind, will understand what we as Canadians went through, and the dangers of of promoting intolerance in this country. If you look at the tolerance uh, timeline of of, of our nation, the the Japanese, the Chinese, the Italian community, the First Nations communities, obviously, you know, so many communities have, have suffered through discrimination, and it's important for us. Um, to to remember those struggles, to celebrate where we've come as a country, where, you know, tomorrow we're celebrating Canada Day because we are in an unbelievable country. This is the best country on earth. But also to, to think about how we can we can enhance that into the future. Well, the numbers are disturbing. The actions are, are alarming. And uh, the situation just seems to be getting more challenging, more difficult, worse is the better word. Mr. Benalolo, thank you very much for the time. It's good talking to you. All the very best. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Avi Benalolo is the president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies in Toronto. Well, I always look forward to the segments that we air with the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Premier Brian Peckford. You can find his really extremely interesting and entertaining emphasis on interesting blogs at peckford42.wordpress.com peckford42.wordpress.com Mr. Premier, I have a lot of questions for you. Thank you very much. (laughs) I am willing and able. (laughs) I have a lot of questions for you. (laughs) Well, listening to your programs last few weeks, uh, I end up with a lot of questions too, I got to say. Life has become a question, hasn't it? Has it ever? Yeah. Here's a question that I asked. I, I want you to think about this, and then I'll ask you for an answer toward the end. What I asked in the last hour was, after we spoke with uh, Bob Mitchell in uh, Alberta, business owner in the oil patch who expressed the frustrations and the fears and the, and the crisis mentality that exists there because of the collapsing economy, uh, I asked, what, what's the future of Canada? And uh, it turns out it's a t- difficult question to answer. So I'll ask you to think about that, Premier. Okay. But, but let's start with a couple of things. You just heard the clip from Mr. Trudeau sounding like he had a, a substantive meeting with the uh, leader of China. Um, what, do you, what do you make of uh, the prime minister's performance at the G20? Well, I don't, I, unfortunately, I, I don't think too much of it. And listening to the clip that you just played, he had discussions. I mean, what the Prime Minister should be able to say to Canadians is, I said to the head of China, you are operating in a way which is injurious to Canada for no good reason. And we want our, our hostages back, and we want you to start conducting trade in an honest and fair way. And uh, to say to Canadians that somehow we're going to be appeased by telling us he had discussions when it looked like he had <laughs> hello and goodbye kind of thing, 
uh, exaggerates what he actually did. Let me play that clip for you again. Here, here's the Prime Minister yep. of Canada. I think it was important that I have an opportunity to have face-to-face discussions with President Xi uh, on this issue. We take the situation of the two Canadians detained in China extremely seriously. What does that mean, we take the situation of Canadians detained in China very seriously? What kind of babble-goobble is that? Well, I, th- I thought that was over, that he took it serious. I thought the whole idea was the now to do something about it. Yeah. And having discussions with the head of China, uh, you know, discussions. other people were doing the same thing, no formal talks or anything like that, seems to me to uh, exaggerate uh, what he actually accomplished there, which was uh, zero. Um, so, okay, so uh, we'll come back to Mr. Trudeau in a, in a minute. Like I said, I have a lot of questions for you. The President of the United States crossed into the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, into, um, into that uh, abysmal regime's territory. But at the same time, I have a feeling that Trump accomplished something or may have accomplished something. What do you what do you think, uh, Premier? How would you assess well, what, what took place? I, I, I take a I take the view that yeah I, I I would say and I put it on my blog this morning that you know if in fact by having a personal relationship I give given it's with a, a leader who's operating a very cruel regime but so is China uh, so is Iran so are many other countries where we're doing business so let's not suddenly get. Um, uh, very pure about this when we know we're dealing with a lot of other countries where they're doing a lot of awful things too. So uh, if in fact this personal relationship uh, can mean that they get back to the table and there's no missiles being fired out into the China Sea or over Japan, well then I guess something has been accomplished as much as the majority of people in Canada and the United States want to tell tell, uh, Mr. Trump where to go and go fast. But I take the opposite sort of view, or at least a different view, and say that um, this is better than nothing. And uh, you know what Clinton did? I mean, we gave the Americans gave uh, North Korea a lot of money, and uh, they were going to negotiate, and they got nothing out of it at all. So if by talking we can at least sit down at the table, and we didn't lose any money by so doing, then uh, that is something, I suppose. Yeah, I, uh, I, I see an upside possibility here, and uh, with North Korea in, in, in play, any upside is, is worth pursuing. Yes. Y- you, uh, you, you, had a, uh, you wrote an open letter to the current premier of uh, Newfoundland, and you included a commentary or two about um, a certain federal minister who hails from Newfoundland. Could you share your thoughts? Well, what has happened is, as all of uh, Canada knows, that the uh, Canadian government has passed two very, very bad uh, pieces of legislation, Bill 69 and Bill 48. Uh, Bill 69 deals with a new way of dealing with uh, resource developments in this country. But in so doing, and the provisions that is in Bill 69, it essentially shuts down a lot of additional resource development or makes it very, very difficult to get anything going. But in addition to that, what most Canadians wouldn't know, because there's only a small number live in Newfoundland, is that Bill 69 also has provisions in it that break provisions of the Atlantic Accord, which was an accord signed by the government of Canada and the government of Newfoundland and put into legislation in 1985-86. So I wrote the Premier, the present Premier of Newfoundland, saying you must take the federal government to court because they are violating a federal-provincial agreement already in place that was signed in 1985 as related to the principle of joint management of the offshore oil and gas resources. So, uh, and that very upsetting. And of course, the 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 minister for Newfoundland, Mr. Regan, um, has done nothing to support the province of Newfoundland or to support Newfoundlanders in pointing out and taking on this issue with his friend, the Prime Minister. He has stood behind the Prime Minister in taking away from Newfoundland rights that we gained through the Accord. So uh, he is no friend of Newfoundland. He might be a Newfoundlander and he might be in the Cabinet of Canada representing Newfoundland, but he has done nothing to demonstrate that he is behind his province 
which he should be legitimately as a minister from Newfoundland. Premier, I'd never be critical of you, you know that, but I think you could have stopped when you're talking about Minister Reagan when you said he's done nothing. I didn't think you needed to go beyond that. Yeah. It's, it's okay, so it's a little, I was trying a little humor and it fell flat. Um, I have to, I have to, I have to uh, focus on a, on one of your blog pieces and um, I want your, how am I going to do that with this without blowing it? You commented on a photograph of Trump, Trudeau, and Xi on the CBC website and beside it the word Titan. I can't even say it. Titans. <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself. I mean, when I opened the CBC <laughs> news <laughs> on my on my uh, on my computer on my iPad and saw this word Titan, and there we had the head of China and the head of America, and then <laughs> Justin Trudeau. I mean. You know, I, of course, I go on on my blog to talk about the word pygmy as an unimportant person to more adequately describe our prime minister. I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind. And, of course, it's great psychology. What journalism is doing these days is putting together these kinds of things to subtly, right, get across a message. So anybody just innocently reading that would come away with, uh, you know, putting out their chest that somehow our prime minister was put in the same league as the president of the United States and the head of the government of China. And, uh, you know, I, I accuse uh, CBC of a lot. And right here, uh, here's a really good example of a very, uh, what shall I say, linguistically uh, acute way of supporting the prime minister when he doesn't deserve it. Uh, or they don't know the word, the meaning of the word titans. Well, um, the, 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 that's that's the, 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 that's helping them out, um, you know, significantly. I, 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 we all know they know. The yeah, I know, I know. Plane. Let me just get to this question that I've been asking, <clears throat> and it was based on a number of issues, and and it just sort of fell into my lap last night while I was thinking about this country and Canada Day tomorrow. What's the future of Canada, Premier? How do you see the future of of this country? I would take it on two levels. First, I would take it as you. Uh, uh, as you ask the question, and that is on a strictly practical Canadian level, uh, whereby uh, I think the future is very, very questionable, at least a successful future for our country, because you can't have a law for B.C. where you're not allowed to have oil tankers on the one hand, and then don't have a law in Newfoundland where hundreds and hundreds of tankers are going up Placentia Bay every week and every year, taking oil uh, to market, to taking oil to come by chance refinery, taking oil from Hibernia, bringing it into Placentia Bay, and then transshipping it around the world. You can't have two sets of laws governing the same industry. Uh, you either have a country or you don't. Uh, so, And then Bill 69, which tends to discriminate against Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular, that will not sustain our country. So to me, on a very practical level, um, our country is in trouble in the sense that our functioning federation will diminish over time and we will be a very weakened, fractured place, call it nation, call it country, whatever. How it manifests itself 10 years from now, I don't know, but it will mean that we will not be cohesive and we will not be performing at a level at which we should. Second level is more philosophical and global. Canada is becoming more and more urbanized. Cities are starting to dictate national policy, leaving the countryside in ruins. And that's what's starting to happen and will happen more and more over time. And therefore, the callers to your program that you had today from Alberta and other places which are concerned about rural parts of the nation will only exacerbate over time. This is also made worse by a globalist agenda that most national governments are 
are following. That's my opening statement. I I have to. I have nothing to add. I mean, it's that's perfect. I mean, it really speaks to everything that we're we're dealing with. Let me read you this email that I received from Sean. Uh, politicians, and he's looking at the political side of things, the political arena. Politicians yep. look to please everyone except Canadians. There's no politician who will stand up and have a backbone. Andrew Scheer doesn't know what he wants. Trudeau is a disaster. Singh, even his own party doesn't like him. I thought Ford might be different, but he's turned out to be a joke. There's no one to guide this country. We're losing what made us great. And you want to talk dirty oil? No dirtier oil than that from Saudi Arabia. Sean. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I, I, uh, I applaud uh, his prose and I applaud his intervention into the discussion. That's uh, dead on. There are, there's a leadership vacuum in this country. Where we just want to uh, sort of uh, cater to sort of almost the lowest common denominator. Some group, however small, uh, raises up and makes a point. We somehow have to respond to it, whether it represents uh, uh, the, you know, the Canadian majority or not. We, we seem like we have to appease all over the place. So there's no coming together as a nation. Right. We're getting fractured more and more every day. Premier, thank you so much for the time. As always, there were more issues we wanted to get at, but we got a quite a few. We've done a real good job today, Roy. Well, you did. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Premier Peckford. Thank you, and happy Canada Day, nevertheless. Happy Canada Day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.